Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can come before your throne. And we thank you for the joy we've had already this morning. Lord, it is so good to go into the house of the Lord to share with our brothers and sisters our joy and our confidence in you and our desire to be conformed to your image. So we're so thankful we can have a good time and praise you. And Lord, we thank you for our holiday as we remembered your birth, as we remembered all the blessedness that we do have in you. And Lord, now we're praying for this new season that's coming up as we learn to work together, as we play and we pray. We pray that we can work together, God, and do the things that you have for us to do. And thank you for each one that works with us and all of our pastors. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. I woke up this morning and God said, you should have Francis lead into the sermon. I said, that's a good idea. I'd much rather have Francis lead in every time than me. I don't know exactly what Bunko and Blessings is all about, but I'm guessing that they're going to start to play for money now. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> <clears throat> And on the subject of square dancing, my home church in Santa Barbara actually did a lot of that. Our, our college group was a lot of fun. And all I remember is that when the caller says, stack the wood, that means hug your partner. <laughs> Great. I want to thank our elders for uh, leading our service last week, for the church giving the staff a break between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, what an awesome time that is to be able to spend with family. We had our one daughter flying home. Uh, from out of state, and flight got canceled and then changed, and three days went to two days, so every minute with family is much appreciated and, and much enjoyed, and I hope that you all had good celebrations with your family and friends and extended ones as well. We are going to, starting, well actually starting today, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, and be, uh, before you get too excited about what that means, I, I look back at the last time we did John, and it was 2010, 2011. And I'm like, some people weren't even alive then, you know. Just, we have so many young people at our church. What we want to do this time, if we were to do John verse by verse, like we did last time, we'd be in it till Christ comes. We're going to be looking at big themes and uh, the big picture, something that oftentimes you miss when you're going verse by verse and looking uh, in great detail. Just for example, there are seven miracles in John. There's really eight if you count the miraculous catch of fish in John 21, which is considered the epilogue, kind of the ending of John rather than the gospel proper. But each one of the seven miracles that John lays out is, is actually a sign. And each one of the signs says something significant about Jesus. There are seven personal, lengthy, private conversations with individuals that Jesus has. Um, more than just, hey, how you doing? Nice day, good weather, but significant stuff. There are seven I am statements in John that reveal and affirm who Jesus is. There are seven witnesses who testify about Jesus, seven women who meet Jesus, seven last statements of Jesus on the cross. And I, I'm not into numerology, and this is not going to be about <clears throat> numbers and the significance of numbers. It's just, it's interesting how John has grouped things together and that the, the bigger points that he's making. We're going to take a look at that beginning actually next week all the way to Easter. Today we're going to revisit our mission and vision as a church, which 
It isn't posted in the lobby anymore, but it's in different places around the church. And many of you know, our mission and our vision as a church is inviting people to follow Jesus as we impact our community and world. And I thought, what better way to flesh that out this morning than through the first chapter of John? And just talking about what is the heart of our message. Because oftentimes we think, if I'm going to share my faith with other people, if I'm going to invite people to follow Jesus, um, what's the essence, the core of what I should be talking about? We've said over the last several years that discipleship begins with unchurched people. I grew up with a model of discipleship where it was like we need to save somebody, bring them to the Lord, then we disciple them. But really, if you look at Jesus' life and ministry, discipleship begins with unchurched people. None of the people that Jesus called to follow him had a clue what it meant to follow God, know God, have a relationship with God, have their sins forgiven, and Jesus taught them that as they went along. And so, as we are talking about deep discipleship this year, that's our goal for this year, and really till Christ comes back, is what it means for us to invest ourselves in the lives of others one by one, relationship by relationship, and expand the kingdom of God. And as I shared that vision earlier, a few weeks ago we talked about there's three main areas that we're going to be discipling people, Bible knowledge, Christian doctrine and theology, and then spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, Sabbath, as well as Christian living. And uh, the staff, the elders, the deacons have all read a book called Deep Discipleship by J.T. English. And in there, he talks about the fact that the needs of disciples don't change. They always need to know more about Scripture. They always need to know their doctrine, theology. They, also, they always need to know about spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. But there is growth within each one of those areas. You can start somebody at a basic level and go to advanced level. So the three areas will always remain the same, but the intensity and the level of each will change. As we talk about our vision today, inviting people to follow Jesus as we impact our community and world, um, I've said this many times, and, and it bears repeating I fall into the habit, and I hope you don't fall into this habit as well. It's easy to fall into that inviting somebody to a Sunday morning service or to the Noel concert or to a ministry or an event is the same thing as inviting people to follow Jesus. And it's, it's a good seed planting thing. It is certainly beneficial, but it is not the same thing. Somebody might say no to coming to church or coming to an event. You can still have a conversation with them about Jesus. And I hope that we do. We forget as church people that in the mind of many unchurched people, an invitation to come to church or to an event is an invitation to have a, a weird experience hanging out with people who think and act differently than they do. And that's rather uncomfortable. And so in many people's minds, a rejection of an invitation to church or to an event or to a ministry is very different than an, a rejection of Jesus. And we have gotten into the habit of using church as a means to leading people to the Lord. And that's fine and that's okay, but we need to never stop pursuing engagement and conversations with people individually. And in fact, when we look at Jesus, his life and ministry, that's exactly what we see. Jesus did not recruit his disciples from the synagogues, from the rabbinical schools, 
from the religious groups of the day, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sanhedrin, who were the top 70, like the supreme court of the day. Jesus went to average people. And I think one of the reasons why he went to them is because they were a blank slate. He didn't have to deprogram them of all the baggage and the wrong concepts and mentalities and traditions that perhaps they held on to. And they were also people that other people could relate to. And it's interesting that Jesus primarily didn't disciple people through sermons and large crowds or events, but he did it one-on-one. He did it in small group settings. He, he lived with 12 guys for three years. They, they did meals together. They traveled together. They did ministry together. And that was his practice. And so there's a lot to learn from that and from that, mo- from that model. Jesus' teaching style, if you think about it, in three years to accomplish everything that, that the Father had tasked him to accomplish if any one of us had been given that same responsibility, we probably would have went to the, the large schools, the large settings, and thought, I need to make the biggest impact that I can make. But Jesus, being God in human flesh, knew that the way to do it was one-on-one. And in John 17, he's praying to his father, and best I can tell, he, he's still in the upper room. He's with the disciples, and so he's actually praying in front of the disciples, and having this intimate conversation with his heavenly father, which must have been the most amazing thing to see right before the cross and the suffering. But he says, Father, I have glorified you, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And then when he's on the cross in John 19, he says to his disciple, um, to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, it says the disciple took her into his own household. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, and it goes on from there. What a beautiful thought that all of the things that Jesus had to accomplish or was tasked to accomplish in terms of the kingdom and ministry before he left this earth, the last thing ended with handing off his mom and entrusting her to family that she would be cared for and and taken into John's home and and that her needs would be looked after. But the point is that Jesus meticulously unfolded this, this vision and this plan of reaching other people for the gospel and for the kingdom. And it's basically one-on-one relationships. And that's what we are going to be doing with deep, deep discipleship. But as we look at John's first chapter, and as we kick off kind of this big picture look at John, there are three main things I want to talk about today that are the essence of our message. Three main things. And for those of you who have known the Lord and come to church, and none of these are going to be revolutionary. They're going to be um, just confirming and, and uh, kind of reassuring us of things that perhaps we know, but that we need to dig in even deeper on. The first thing, and probably the most important thing of our message, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The fact And the belief that Jesus is God is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the planet. That is the single one thing that separates us from so many other beliefs and practices. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a rabbi, a prophet, um, the son of God, the agent of creation. 
not just even the Messiah. I was talking with some staff this week. For Jews to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, <coughs> excuse me, was not the same thing as believing that he was God. Because the Messiah in their mentality was someone like Elijah that would come back and, and usher in the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't to say that God was actually coming and taking on human flesh. What Jesus did was absolutely astounding. And for the monotheistic mindset of the Jews, there being only one God, behold, the Lord our God is one God, for Jesus to claim divinity was blasphemous. It was something that was just ridiculous, and they, they, they didn't uh, believe it at all. And one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do as you think about your testimony and sharing with other people is start compiling a list of all of the the things that you know that point to the divinity of Jesus. Those are the things that are easy to forget when you're having a conversation with somebody. But I want to walk through my list with you of some of the things over the years that have kind of sunk in with me that prove that Jesus is God. And one of the things I want to preface by saying is that you will hear a lot of critics say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Or, or the Bible or the authors of Scripture, the human authors, weren't inspired by God, and they, they kind of took it to a level that he never intended, and you hear a lot of other things. One of the things I want to ask you to look as you read Scripture, look at the reaction of people when Jesus says things. You can tell by their reaction whether Jesus is claiming what you think he's claiming. When the Jews pick up stones to kill him, when they nail him to a cross, when they are plotting to kill him for three years, it's not because he's saying nice, you know, simple things. It's because he is making claim to divinity, and they knew exactly what he meant by that. So those are some things to look at. Jesus said um, somewhere in the Gospels, and I don't know any direct reference that we have recorded, but in John ten thirty three, the Jews said, because you are merely a man and make yourself out to be God. That is why we want to kill you. So at some point, Jesus said, yes, I'm God. And they're arguing, you're, merely, you're the carpenter's son. You, you're Joseph and Mary's son. You are not God. And because you're claiming to be God, we want to kill you. C.S. Lewis kind of followed up and said, somebody that made the kind of claims that Jesus made is, is one of three options. They're either a liar they know they're not God, and they're just outright lying. They're a lunatic. They truly believe that they are God, but they're just deluded and they're mental, or they have to be exactly who they are, Lord. They're either liar, lunatic, or Lord, and that's a good thing to remember. The Jews' reaction time and time again is that they accuse him of blasphemy. They want to stone him. They want to plot to kill him. John 1.1 is one of the biggest proof texts for the deity of God, and yet when other religions come to your doorway, they will argue because their Bible says something different, and they will say, because there is no the in front of God, Jesus is just a God, and we all will be gods, but he is not the God. And I've told you before, if you want to do a deep dive, come and talk to me. Greek is, is just following a universal rule of grammar there, why there isn't a the. And I'll give you a beautiful passage at the end of this where there is a the, which is a good alternate passage to use that they don't think of very often. But John 1.1 1, 1 is not making a theological statement of, of, about Jesus by omitting the, the definite article, the. It is saying that Jesus was in the beginning with God, and he is God. 
and that is very much a proof of his deity. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, and Pilate is asking him who he is, he, he reveals that, and he says, and hereafter you will see the Son of Man returning, riding upon the clouds. And at that point, the high priest tears his robes because riding on the clouds was something that only Yahweh God did. That was exclusively reserved for God. No one else did that. For Jesus to make that claim was a claim to divinity, and you can tell by the high priest's reaction. The Gospels record when Jesus stilled the sea, when they were out in the boat in the Sea of Galilee, it got very tumultuous, and Jesus was asleep in the stern, and he gets up and he says, be still. And they're like, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? That was a claim to divinity because only Yahweh God had power over the evil and the chaos, the uncontrollable powers of the sea and of the wind. And Jesus demonstrated that. Initiating forgiveness. Mark chapter 2, they lower the paralytic through the roof. And Jesus says, you know, take up your mat, rise, your sins, and, and be healed. And the Jews say, no one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus is like, and? You know, of course, yes, you're getting it. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. The, the Greek of the day is essential nature. All of the philosophers talked about essential nature. If two things shared the same essential nature, they were exactly the same. They weren't copies of each other or replicas. They were exactly the same thing. And that's what Hebrews 1 is saying, that Jesus is the exact representation, the essential nature of God. And then a little bit later in Hebrews 1, here's a good one that the, the cults never think of. But God commands the angels of heaven to worship Jesus. And I will ask you, where in Scripture does God ever allow much more command anybody to worship anyone other than himself. And as you move to the book of Revelation, and the whole heavenly host is bowing down and worshiping the Lamb of God again, where is God the Father in that picture if God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not one? God is not standing by while the Lamb gets all this worship. The Lamb of God is God himself, and that's why the whole heavenly host are worshiping him. The centurion at the foot of the cross. I love Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 39. It says that when the centurion saw the way that Jesus died, he, he exclaimed, truly this was the Son of God. And in the Jewish mind, Son of God and God were, you couldn't be the Son of God without being equal with God and being God. But it was the fact that <clears throat> Jesus was suffering and he was in agony, but he was very much alive. And the centurion watched how Jesus said, it is finished, and then delivered over his spirit to God. He's like, that guy just orchestrated his death. That was God. Who does that? Who is in control of their own death? And so the centurion exclaims that. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, although in human form, did not regard equality with God as an entitlement, but he laid that aside in his humanity to serve us as a bondservant. He didn't use his divinity to ease his human experience. John chapter 8, verse 58, the Jews are arguing with Jesus, and they say, well, you're not greater than our father Moses and Abraham, are you? And, and Jesus says, before Abraham and Moses, I am. And he doesn't finish it. 
He doesn't say, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am, which is Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. And they, again, their reaction, they want to stone him there. They want to kill him because they know exactly what he's claiming. The people that say, no, he wasn't claiming that, that's exactly what he's claiming. One of my favorites is John chapter 18, verse 6. When they're coming to arrest Jesus in the garden, they're, they're coming with clubs and spears and swords, and he says, who are you? We are looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. He doesn't say in the English like we read, I am he. He just says, I am. And you can tell by their reaction, everybody hits the deck. They all fall to the ground, which is one of the most like hair-raising, just amazing things in all of Scripture. And Jesus kind of has to say, get up, you got to arrest me, let's do this, you know. <laughs> it's just, but how powerless they must have felt. They have weapons and stuff, he's unarmed, and he just says, I am. And the sheer force of proclaiming his power and identity, they hit the ground. Divinity, major divinity. Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is promising to be able to give us the same rest that the Jews were seeking after and striving after all through the Old Testament. They wanted to enter the promised land and enter God's rest. And because of their sin, God continually said time and time again, I swear they will never enter my rest. And Jesus is saying that rest that they sought after, the rest that God the Father promised, I am the one who allows you to enter into that rest. Major claim to divinity. Think about every time Jesus exercises a demon. When the demons would come out of someone, they knew exactly who he was. You are Jesus, the Holy One of God. They knew his identity. The fact that he's preexistent, that he existed before the manger. John chapter 17, he's praying again to his father. And he says, Father, now glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began. The cults will say, yeah, well, God used him to create the world, so he existed before the world, but he was God's first creation, and then he created everything else. That's not what the Greek says. That's not what the, the Hebrew says. That's, that's a total misinterpretation. The fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, uh, that he's able to, to raise people from the dead, and even in the Gospels where he says, I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the power to take it up again. Finally, one of my favorite passages that Joe was sharing was one of his favorite passages was Friday morning, Colossians 1, 15 to 19. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come and have first place in everything. And this is the kicker right here. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness of deity to dwell in him. Friends, how do you have the fullness of deity dwelling within you and, and not be God? And then here's the last one that I'll share for now. And it's overlooked. But when Thomas, in that upper room after the resurrection, declares, my Lord and my God, there is a definite, art, art, there's a definite article in front of each one of those. You are the Lord and you are the God. That's what he's claiming. You are the Lord of me and you are the God of me. 
So for all of the cults that come to your door and say, well, there's no God, he's just a God, that's, that's just shouting it. I urge you, I encourage you to come up with your own list. Those are just some of the ones that I love to go to because oftentimes people go to the same verse over and over again and critics know those well and they have their response. But the essence of our message is that Jesus is God. That's what separates us from every other religion and that is the heart of the gospel. The second is this, that Jesus is salvation. Jesus is salvation. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said, Jesus does not give us recipes to show the way to God as other teachers of religion do. He is himself the way. Charles Spurgeon said the heart of the gospel is redemption. And the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Paul put it in these words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through him. I share that verse almost every communion because that's that's the essence of the gospel and that's the essence of salvation, that Jesus took our place. Jesus hung on that cross to pay for our sins, to atone for our sins. He was without sin. He knew no sin, but he took on sin for us. And because of him, we are now dressed in the robes of his righteousness. A.W. Tozer, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. And that is exactly what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14. The disciples were troubled because Jesus was sharing that he's going to be soon leaving them. But he says, you know the way to go where I'm going. And Thomas is like, we don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? And that's when Jesus says, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. And that was the moment like, ah, okay. We get it. We get it as much as we're going to get it. One of the things I've said over the years, and it's kind of the best argument I come up with myself, If there were multiple ways to get to God, then how pointless was the cross? And how foolish Jesus was to suffer that agony and deliver himself over. But if you really believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, that he is omniscient, all-knowing, that he doesn't make mistakes, if there were other ways to get to God, it just... Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was saying, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass. And he knew there was no other way. He was resigned to go and suffer because he knew that was the only way to accomplish our salvation. So when people argue, well, Jesus is one of many ways to God, that is outright blasphemy because that flies in the face of exactly why he died on the cross. John chapter 1, as we begin our study of John, many of you know, verse 12, but as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So believing in God through Jesus is what makes us children of God. The world wants to say we're all children of God, and that's not technically true. We are all created by God, and we are made and designed in his image, but you do not become a child of God until you place your faith in God through Jesus. The Bible is very clear on that. John 1.29, 
John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus' ministry, the one who was called to proclaim and usher in the kingdom of heaven. One day he sees Jesus walking by. His disciples have been following him up into this period, but he's been telling them, there's going to be one who comes after me who's greater than me, and, and his sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And when he comes, I'll let you know. And Jesus goes by, and what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our salvation. He is the one who <clears throat> substitutes for our sin. Luke chapter 1, 68 and 69. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, when he is met by the angel and is told that he's going to have a son even though his wife is barren, and um, that that son is going to be the, the herald and the forerunner of, of Christ's ministry, he says, Blessed be the, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And Jesus was born of the line of David. He was the fulfillment of that. Simeon, the old man who was serving in the temple and was promised by God that he would not die until he saw the Lord's salvation. One day, Mary and Joseph walk in, and Simeon proclaims, My eyes have seen your salvation, O Lord, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon says, this is the one. And it says that Joseph and Mary were amazed because even though Gabriel had made it clear to Joseph and to Mary that they would give birth to the Messiah, they didn't understand, I think, fully that they were giving birth to God and God in human flesh and that he would be the one who would bring salvation. Finally, Peter in this sermon in Acts chapter 4, filled with the Holy Spirit, he gets up and he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is God and Jesus is salvation. The final point is simple. Jesus is divine revelation. Jesus is divine revelation. Eugene Peterson says, 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history, <clears throat> capped by a full exposition in Jesus Christ, tell us that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more than it is accepted, is dismissed by far more people than embrace it, and has been either attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it is given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. And isn't that exactly what we find in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11? that he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then this is the saddest part. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's the contrast of verse 12. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 1, verse 9. 
powerful verse about God's revelation. Jesus is the true light that has come into the world to enlighten every man and every woman. Jesus is the light of God. Jesus is God's revelation come to earth that we might know God. Really, there is no revelation of God apart from Jesus. That's what Scripture is saying. There is no way to know God apart from Jesus. If Jesus is not God in human flesh, then we know nothing more about God than previous generations have ever known. It's all a lie. He's either the explanation of God, the revelation of God, or he's not. Verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word became flesh, and it says that we have seen God's glory through Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples when they said, show us the Father, what did Jesus say? Why do you ask to see the Father? He who has seen the Son has seen the Father. Like you've seen me. I am, I am the image of the Father. Why do you ask to see the Father if you've seen me? And my favorite, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. So everything we need to know about God <clears throat> to become saved and have a relationship with God, and everything we need to know about what God expects for, from us and what God desires to do through us, it is all found in Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, the final Word of God made flesh. I love how Hebrews chapter 1 puts it. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. That's what I was referring to, essential nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the majesty on high. Why? Because work accomplished, work finished, work fulfilled. What this is really saying is that Jesus is God's final revelation. There is no new revelation apart from what is in Scripture. And that's why we say many times, whenever anybody says, I got a word from the Lord or I got something new, it better line up with this or they didn't hear from God. That you can be sure of. If someone's got a word from God or something new that we need to listen to or follow, it either lines up with Scripture or it's heresy. Because God's full authoritative word is here. It's sufficient for teaching and training and righteousness and, and doctrine, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. That's the essence of our message. Jesus is God. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is divine revelation. I think about my own life. How has God confirmed to me that he is God? I am told by my mom that when I was two, three years old, was born in Monrovia, California, down by Pasadena, that I used to go to my closet and put on my Sunday best, which was kind of a ridiculous outfit in that day is the way they dress kids was just... <laughs> and my mom had... had uh, recently found the Lord. She'd grown up in the church, kind of Episcopalian, 
done the stand-up, sit-down, fight, 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 you know, knew the creeds and recited this, recited that, but never knew what a personal relationship with the Lord was. She found the Lord personally through Bible study fellowship, and at that same time, she started posting Billy Graham crusade signs in our front yard. And so I, as a two-year-old or a three-year-old, uncoaxed on my own, apparently, would put on my Sunday clothes and we, had, we rented one of those Pasadena homes with the grand porch, and I would go out to the porch, and I would preach to the neighbors going by. So that's kind of a, a funny thing to me, because I grew up most of my life painfully shy. Like, I did not want to talk in front of people or be in front of crowds, but apparently as a kid, I had no inhibition. And around age four, um, I came to the realization that this God that I had been talking to neighbors about and preaching about was a God that I needed. And I knelt with my mom beside her bed, and she led me to Christ. And, you know, the, the rest of my story, I've told you guys, age 12, I knew that God was calling me to full-time ministry, and uh, at a Keith Green concert, and Keith Green gave an invitation not to accept the Lord, but to give your life to full-time ministry, and I knew at age 12. And from that point on, God has called me to share his gospel. But God has proven himself to me over the years in many, many ways, answered prayer, um, confirmed in my life through scripture, through circumstances, his faithfulness, his presence, his peace. When I think about how he has saved me, yeah, that was, that was a story of how God saved me. I kind of skipped ahead to that, but I was a little four-year-old and even at age four, I knew that Jesus was God, and I knew that I needed him. And I had parents that were modeling that for me. And finally, you know, how has God revealed himself to me? I would say through Scripture, primarily. Scripture has just been amazing. And through experiences in my life. Um, I've told you about the rare occasions where God has given me dreams and visions that... Um, we're powerful, and that is not the norm, and I don't say that lightly, but God has spoken to me powerfully. Uh, one time when I was four and a half, and we moved from Monrovia to Santa Barbara, and that evening I had a Jacob's Ladder dream, and I've told you that whole story about how God was affirming that the same God that had been with us was now with us where we had moved to, and that was the same thing he was communicating to Jacob, long story short. And even before we moved to this property, the dream that God gave me, we were shaking hands with Jewish people to buy this property. And yet none of the people in that dream were people that I recognized, not the rabbi that I started a relationship with. And all. But it turns out when the, when the people that owned this property sold it to us, they couldn't deal directly with sinful Gentiles, so they had to go through a third party. And that's why in the dream, it made sense that I was shaking hands with people. They were the note holders of the property, but they weren't the people on and on. God has confirmed his power through dreams and visions, through friends and family and godly counsel time and time again, proving that he is faithful, that he is who he says he is. And lastly, I would say through mission trips around the world where I have seen God do miraculous things that only he can do. I have seen God bring people to himself in miraculous ways, people that were far, far from God, far from the gospel, and God brought down walls. And so that's the essence of our message, friends. It's very simple. Jesus is God. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is divine revelation. And that's 
the heart of what this table represents. I'm going to invite our worship team back up. I'm going to ask our elders and leaders to prepare to serve us in a few moments. But my first concern is that if you are here today and you have never started a personal relationship with God through Jesus, that's where it begins. In fact, Scripture says, please don't even partake of these elements because these elements symbolize a relationship that you have not yet bought into yet, and it would be wrong to do so. But Scripture also says that right now, in the quietness of your own heart, you don't have to make a public spectacle. You don't have to walk up to the front of the room and say, I need Jesus and I surrender my life. You could do that if you want, but Scripture doesn't call for that. The point is, if you believe that Jesus paid the price for your sins, if you believe, like me and everybody else here, that we are sinners saved by God's grace alone, then God's death on the cross covers that sin, and it, it makes you righteous in His sight. And it allows you to experience eternal life, not someday in the future, but right now. Because eternal life is a whole other quality of life. It is spirit-empowered life that begins from the moment that you accept the Lord. And that's what we celebrate today. Scripture says that communion is not only remembering what Christ did on our behalf, but it is also a proclamation to the rest of the world that He is God that he has paid the price for our sin. And that's what we proclaim as we observe this until he comes back. Let's pray. Father God, as we <clears throat> prepare to receive the elements, the bread and the cup, which symbolize your body and your blood, we thank you that you made a way back to God through Jesus. That Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay for our sin. That God so loved the world that he spared not his only son, but gave him up that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Father God, that's what we celebrate today. We thank you that as we just read this morning, as many as received you to them, you gave the right to become children of God. Children born not by natural birth, but of the Spirit. Father God, would you meet with us during this time? May your presence be real and powerful. We thank you for your substitutionary death. We confess our sins before you now, and we, we thank you that your, your blood covers all of them. There is no sin that we commit that is greater than your power to wipe it out and wash it clean. So, Father, we believe and we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.